Thank you for tuning in to Emmanuel Faith Community Church. We hope you enjoy today's sermon. Hey, good morning, Emmanuel Faith. My name is Ryan, and it's so great to have you here today. If you're joining us online, a special welcome to you as well. Happy football season, everyone. I just want you to know the Broncos still have a chance to win the Super Bowl as of today. So praise be to God. Praise be to God. Uh, really thankful that you're here today. A few years ago, I read a book that um, changed the way that I, I look at life to a large degree. It was a book called The Power of Habit, and it's by a guy named Charles Dweig. Has anybody read it? Um, in it, uh, Dweig suggests that the habits that we embrace will eventually shape the lives that we live. And that may not seem all that earth-shattering or significant to you, and it wasn't that part that got me. It was a chapter in the book where he identified what he called keystone habits. He suggested that there are a few habits that if you embrace those habits, there's a whole lot of other things that are attached to doing those things. That they work sort of like a chain reaction or dominoes hitting one to the next to the next to the next, where if you do that one thing, there's a lot that results from it. Here's the way he defined a keystone habit. He said, keystone habits start a process that over time transforms everything. Keystone habits say that success doesn't depend on getting every single thing right. How many of you are grateful for that? Me too. But instead relies on identifying a few key priorities and fashioning them into powerful levers. So here's his thesis. Not all habits are created equal. There are some habits where if you work those into your life, they are attached to so many other things that we deem important as human beings. Let me give you a few such examples. Um, number one, probably won't come as much of a surprise to you, but one of the habits that he identified that's a keystone habit is exercising regularly. That studies would show that if you exercise regularly, you eat better, sleep better, think more clearly, and generally feel better. So my guess is you probably saw that one coming. Here's uh, two others that maybe aren't quite as intuitive. Um, having family dinners together, that's a keystone habit. The research suggests that families who habitually eat together seem to raise children with better homework skills, higher grades, greater emotional intelligence, and just generally more confidence. Here's another one that may not seem all that intuitive. Um, making your bed every morning is a keystone habit, allegedly. Uh, allegedly. <laughs> Making your bed allegedly is correlated with increased productivity, a greater sense of well-being, better budgeting skills. Bed makers are more likely to like their jobs, own a home, exercise regularly, and feel well-rested. Okay, just by a quick show of hands, how many of you make your beds on a regular basis? Wow! <laughs> Okay, so you guys, here's the deal. At the nine o'clock service, every single hand was in the air. <laughs> and judgmental eyes were staring back at me. Like, we can't believe that we've trusted somebody that doesn't make their bed every day, right? Like, how could we? So here's my thesis. Um, the earlier the service you attend, the more likely you are to make your bed. So at our five o'clock service, I'm gonna feel like those are my people, right? Like, okay, fine, not every day, but... Uh, I make my bed. Okay, fine. Let's just keep moving on. 
And so here's, here's the thesis, is that keystone habits, they, they help put the rest of life in place. So what if there was a keystone habit that you could embrace that would partner with Jesus and the spirit as he shapes your soul? Like what if there was a, a keystone habit that could shape your spiritual life in the same manner that allegedly making your bed shapes the rest of your life? Like what if, what if you could change one thing that ended up changing everything? If you have a Bible, would you open with me to John chapter 8? Because Jesus is going to introduce us in this portion of his teaching to a keystone habit that many blessings of God flow from. So let me remind you as a context as we're jumping in today, Jesus is teaching in the temple. The Feast of Booths has just ended. He points, he's standing in the temple and he points to these 75 foot tall candelabras that have been put out because the feast has come to an end. And he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the, say it with me church, the light of life. And the Pharisees began debating him. They just couldn't accept or come to terms with the fact that Jesus was who he claimed to be, that he was God in human flesh, that he was in fact the light of the world. And as they're debating him, going back and forth, John adds this little detail in, in and he says, and as he was saying these things, many, what? Believed in him. And that seems like a, a positive turn. And indeed it was, but Jesus is going to take this sort of thread of belief and he's going to start to pull on it. He's going to push into it. And he's going to say, I-, I want you to believe in me. I long for you to believe in me. But in order for you to do that, there's going to be some things that you just have to work into your life as a human being so that you can faithfully walk with me. And so Jesus, in talking to people who had just believed in him, gives them what I'm going to call his post-conversion, their post-conversion pep talk. He paints a clear path forward and a path towards growth and wholeness. Listen to what he says. So Jesus said to the Jews who had just believed in him, if you abide in my word, everybody say, if you, if you, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. See, this is both a remarkable challenge and it's a thrilling promise. And it all starts with a keystone habit. I don't know if you caught it, but here's the keystone habit. The keystone habit is abiding in Jesus is the one thing that changes everything. It's the first domino that Jesus says has to fall and that when it does, there's a chain reaction that takes place in a person's life that a number of the blessings of God that we long for are attached to. Now, really quick, just a a bit of of the Greek, because this word abide is going to come back a number of times in John's gospel. I, I would argue it's one of his sort of organizing thoughts or principles that weaves its way all throughout his gospel and will come to a climax in chapter 15. This word abide in the Greek is the word meno. Will you say that with me? And it means quite literally to abide or to remain or to dwell or to stay or to wait for. Our word abode or home is connected to this word abide. And I think it paints a great picture of what it means to 
abide. It means to make your home in something. I don't know if you've traveled much overseas, but um, I I love traveling and I love coming home. And there's a feeling of when that plane touches down in the U.S. and you step out of it, there's a, a feeling of safety, of comfort, of home that you can just sort of almost viscerally sense as you put your feet on American soil. I don't know if you felt that, but that's the picture of of abiding, to to find your home in a certain place. I I think as, as modern people, we have a great illustration of abiding and we conveniently touch it multiple times every single day. Okay, everybody just tap their pocket right now. How many of you have a phone in your pocket? Okay. I think a, a great picture of abiding is the way that we interact with our phones. Our phones are the organizing sort of functional center of our lives. We go to our phones for directions. We go to our phones to adjust our thermostat. We go to our phones for credit card information. We go to our phones occasionally to talk to other people. I think you can still do that on these things. Uh, we, We communicate with people. Our phones so much of the time is the last thing we look at before we go to bed. And the first thing that we grab for when we wake up in the morning, anybody want to admit, amen? In so many ways, we abide in our phone. And I think Jesus is saying, I want you to come after me in the same kind of way. I want to be the place that you return to consistently. I want to be the place that you look to naturally. I want to be the place that you reach for immediately. That's what Jesus is claiming. He wants to be for every single one of us. He wants us to abide in his words. Now, I think for a lot of us, we hear abide in my words and what we immediately think is, Read the Bible. But you have to know that the first listeners to Jesus would not have thought that. What they would have heard is him saying, abide in my literal words. The words that I've just spoken to you. Words like, I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. I have living water. And I think for us, a great application of what Jesus taught is to read scripture and to do so on a regular basis. I want to encourage you to do that. It's one of the ways that you can abide in his words. In fact, I love the way that St. Augustine put it. He said, for now, treat the scriptures of God as the face of God. Melt in its presence. What a great picture. But the scriptures and knowing the scriptures and studying the scriptures are not an end in and of themselves. Did you know that? In fact, that's Jesus that tells us that. The scriptures are not an end in and of themselves. Listen to what Jesus said. He said, whoops, (laughs) you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness to me. The scriptures witness to Jesus. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. See, here's my encouragement to you. Make your home in his words, but don't lose sight of the invitation to make your home in the word made flesh. This is about relationship with Jesus, not relationship with the Bible. Okay? 
That's the invitation, to have that, to have Jesus as the place that you reach for, the thing that you long for as in a dry and weary land where there is no water, the thing that you long for, the place that you feel at home. Jesus says, make your home, abide in me. So it's, it's not just his words, but it's the word made flesh. But second, as we sort of try to unpack this word abide, What I want you to know is that it means far more than just white-knuckled, dutiful, I'm going to study the scripture. There's an actual, there's an invitation to delight here, you guys. The rabbis used to um, put a drop of honey on their disciples' tongue as they were teaching about the Torah. And they would encourage them to seek after Torah and scripture in the same way, with the same kind of sweetness that they do after honey. They got this idea from King David who wrote in Psalm 103, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. So here's my question. Do you delight in Jesus in the same way? Is he sweet to you? Do do you long for him? Do you reach for him like you reach for your phone? A third, to abide in Jesus means not only that we read his words, but that we let his words read us. How many of you know what I mean by that? That we don't just study scripture, but that we allow scripture to study us, to point out ways that we're not living in rhythm with Jesus, not staying in step with his spirit, not being obedient. To abide means that we choose to obey. If you don't obey, you aren't abiding. And then finally, and then finally, and I think this is important. To abide in his word does not mean that we keep it perfectly. It means that we come home faithfully. It means that we come home faithfully. Abiding doesn't mean that we never leave. It means that we always return. It's not about perfection. It's about perseverance. That's why Jesus told stories. He told stories about people abiding. Listen to one of them. It says, he told him a parable saying many things. Here's one of his parables. He said, a sower went out to sow seeds. And as he sowed, some of those seeds fell along a path and birds came and devoured them. Other seed fell on rocky ground where they didn't have much soil. Immediately they sprang up, but since they had no depth of soil, the sun rose and and those seeds were just scorched. They had no root, so they withered away. Other seeds fell amongst the thorns and the thorns grew up and they just choked out those good seeds. And then there were some that fell along good soil and produced grain and some a hundredfold, some 60 and some 30. And see, it's in this parable that Jesus captures the idea and the essence that abiding in him is swimming upstream in the world that we live in. How many of you would affirm that? It will not happen by accident. In interpreting this parable, Jesus said that the devil Trials and struggles in this life and cares of this world will all wage war against abiding in Jesus. And if we don't recognize that, I don't know that we have any shot at persevering in abiding with him. And see, perseverance is a kingdom value, even if it's a forgotten value in our society. 
Let me say it as clearly as I can. We have to intentionally craft a life of abiding in Jesus if it's going to become true of us. It will not happen by accident. So no guilt or shame today, but I just want you to name, we should just name where you're at as far as abiding in Jesus. Where are you at in, in seeking him through scripture? Where are you at about organizing your life around him as the center? And maybe, just maybe, is there an invitation for you to shape a keystone habit that could be a domino effect in your life that would change everything? See, Jesus goes on to define a number of the things that are attached to that one keystone habit. And look at what he says. Here's what he says. To the Jews who believed in him, if you abide or make your home in my word, then you are truly what? My disciples. disciples. Here's the claim. Whatever you abide in, you will eventually become like. So if you abide in my word, you will become my disciples. That word disciple is a bit ambiguous for us today. I mean, if you were to ask a group of people, what is a disciple? My guess is even within a church, you would get a number of different definitions of what a disciple actually is. In the first century context, they would have understood it a little bit better. A disciple would have been defined as a student or an apprentice. They would have heard about rabbis calling people to follow after them and become their disciples. And a a disciple they would have recognized was one who followed a rabbi so that they could be with him, become like him, and do the things that the rabbi did. So when Jesus says, as you abide in my words, you become my disciples, there's a lot that's attached to just that, isn't there? To be with, to become like, to do as... As Dallas Willard, I think so accurately put, he said, discipleship is the process of becoming who Jesus would be if he were you. How's that for a goal? I want to become his disciple and I want to live my life in the way that Jesus would live it with all the background that I have, the family that I was born into, the environmental things that I'm walking through, I want to learn to live my life the way that Jesus would live it if he were me. And I think part of our challenge as as Western Christians is that we tend to think of discipleship primarily or even only as a sort of spiritual concept. But I love what John Mark Comer wrote. He said, the question isn't, am I a disciple? The question is, who or what am I a disciple of? That's a very different question. Because there's a lot of us who are being discipled by Netflix and by YouTube. There's a lot of people who are being discipled by celebrities. Listen, Taylor Swift is a master at creating disciples. Swifties are disciples of Taylor Swift. Like she's a master at it. She's brilliant at it. I mean, we're being discipled by culture at large. And if you don't recognize that it's happening, you will never be able to resist it's happening so that you can become a disciple of Jesus. And Jesus says, you will truly be my disciples as you abide in my word. And I think that word truly means that it's possible to be a counterfeit disciple. At least the early church would have thought so. That you could go through the motions and Say the right things and attend church regularly, but 
Never have a heart that's changed to look more and more like Jesus. To become his disciple is to abide in him to the point where you're changed by him. This is the invitation that Jesus is giving. Here's a second thing that's attached to that keystone habit of abide in my word. He says, and you will, say it with me, church, know know the truth. And here's what you need to know about the truth. In John's gospel, the truth is, first of all, the reality of God as present in the person of Jesus Christ. That's truth. And that's why Jesus will say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus embodies truth. However, here, um, the kind of truth that Jesus is talking about isn't observable, measurable, repeatable. It's not something that you can necessarily deduce. He says, as you abide in my word and then become my disciples, you will know the truth. And that word know is the Greek word gnosko. Will you say it with me? It means firsthand experiential knowledge. So gnosko isn't the kind of knowledge you get from just reading a book or watching a YouTube video or learning a few new things. Gnosko is the kind of knowledge you get as you live something out. The kind of knowledge you get as you experience something. Now, this is not some sort of postmodern mumbo-jumbo, your truth is your truth, and my truth is my truth, and let's just all hold hands and sing kumbaya and all get along. That's not what Jesus is saying. On the contrary, he's claiming that as you abide in his word, that you will be able to affirm that what Jesus is teaching aligns with the way the world actually works and ushers us into the life that we long for. The kind of knowledge Jesus is talking about here is affirmed and legitimized as you live it out because his teaching is self-authenticating. As you live it out, you go, wow, he's right. He's right. Because you know truth in a way that you experience truth. Abide in his word, become his disciples, And then you experience truth. You get to go, well, well, that actually works in real life. The problem is, the problem is is that um, truth is often stranger than fiction. And what I mean by that is there's some things that Jesus says that don't seem true on the surface. Um, they're, They're sort of like, if I were to tell you that jalapeno limeade from Trader Joe's is the best thing you've ever tasted... Some of you would push back and you would go, listen, Ryan, jalapeno, like spicy and um, lime, uh, sort of sweet and and tart and sour and putting them all together, I'm not sure. But if I were to pour you a glass of jalapeno limeade over a little bit of ice and you tasted it, you would go, Ryan, you are right. It didn't seem true, but once I experienced it, you're right. Does anybody want to testify today? Okay, praise be to God. We got a few. We got a few, right? I think this is the way that Jesus' teaching works. Uh, Initially, we go, no way, no way. To forgive those who wrong us is better than holding on to bitterness. But but, who do I become if I let go of bitterness? And yet, when you do it, you go, he's right. 
living a generous life instead of hoarding everything I own as my own, but living as a steward to go, that's a better way to live. Initially, it might seem like, I'm not sure what's gonna happen to me if I live that way. And then you taste it and you go, he's right. He's right. To let go of lust that just eats away at our heart and to give it to Jesus, to let it go and to walk in freedom. And then you go, well, he's right. It is better. It is better. See, there's a paradoxical nature about the type of freedom and life and truth that Jesus offers us that we never are able to fully affirm until we live it out. And I love that Jesus has enough confidence in his teaching and his way to say, try me. Try me. Abide in my word. Become my disciple. And then you will know truth. I mean, how many of you over the last few years have have just at some point in time just thrown your hands up in the air and gone, I just want to know it's true. I just want to know it's true. I just want to know what's true about masks. I just want to know what's true about vaccines. I just want to know what's true about elections. I just want to know what's true about aliens. <laughs> I mean, like, let's be honest, who saw that one coming? A Supreme Court case about aliens? What? Like, what world are we living in? I just want to know what's true. And Jesus would say, follow me. Follow me. And you'll know the truth. And then he makes a promise. And the truth will set you free. You abide in his word. It starts to change you. You become his disciple. You get to walk in truth where you go, wow, Jesus, you're right. This is, this does align with reality. This does align with the way that the world actually works. And then you find yourself in the vast expanse of freedom that your soul always longed for. You get to enjoy freedom. You get to enjoy freedom. And as Americans, we we tend to, to love freedom value freedom, fight for freedom, amen. Robert Bella, a sociologist and author, observed that freedom is perhaps the most important value to Americans. And I don't have much disagreement with that. And in fact, Jesus wouldn't have much disagreement with that value being a highly held value. What he would disagree with is how we perceive that we walk in freedom and what freedom actually looks like and feels like from the inside. Luckily for us, the first listeners started to push back on Jesus also. And as we read their statement to Jesus, I just want to suggest to you that the way that we talk about freedom is very similar to the way that they did. And I think our cultural interaction with Jesus's statement maps pretty well over the pushback that Jesus got initially. Listen to it. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we've never been enslaved to anyone. So how is it that you say you will become free? Jesus, what do you have to teach us about freedom? And there's three freedom inhibitors that they draw out for us that I want to point out for you. Here's the first. We are offspring of whom? Abraham. So here's what they're doing. They're saying... Jesus, don't you know who our father is? Father Abraham, he had many sons. I am one of them and so are you, right? And our freedom comes from our father, Abraham. And they're going, here's our resume, Jesus. 
Here's where we come from. Here's our past. Who are you to tell us about freedom? And at their core, they are self-reliant. Jesus, we don't need you. We've got Abraham. They're pointing to their resume. I think we do too. We even point to our spiritual resume. I said this prayer, I'm free. I grew up in this church. I've been around freedom my whole life. I was born into my, this family and we're X generation Christians and we've never been, right? And, and all of it, at its core, all of it is I, I, I. And Jesus is claiming that the freedom that they long for is grounded in a hope and dependence on God, not on themselves. And I would say the same thing to you too. If you look to yourself for freedom, you will perpetually be looking because it's not the way that freedom comes. We are the offspring of Abraham. We, 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 I, I, I. And Jesus is going, oh man, you're missing it. You're missing it. Here's the second thing they said. We have never been enslaved to anyone. What? I'm like, I, I just imagine Jesus like just looking around like, didn't you guys just get done celebrating the Feast of Booths? Like, right, yeah, we did. Well, can you tell me about what the Feast of Booths was about? Um, well, sure. The Feast of Booths is a celebration of the way that God sustained his people through 40 years of wandering after he miraculously freed them from slavery in Egypt. And I think Jesus would say, right, right, tell me more about the slavery in Egypt and how you've never been enslaved to anyone. Oh, and by the way, can we talk about your exile in Babylon for 70 years? Oh, and by the way, can we talk about the way that you're oppressed by the Roman Empire right now and waiting for a Messiah to come and free you? Right, like we've never been enslaved to anyone? What, what? And I think, I think we do a very similar thing. We are self-deceived because it feels better to us to falsely claim that we're free than it does to name our chains. I'm free. I only dabble in pornography. I'm free. I can stop drinking anytime I want to. I'm free. The reason I act that way is because of them. I'm free. I choose to be a little bit cold and a little bit withdrawn so that I don't get hurt. I'm free, I just choose to be this way. I'm free, but I've never been enslaved to anything. And Jesus would look back at us and go, really? And maybe your self-deception keeps you comfortable and maybe it helps you sleep a little bit better at night. But what if it prevents you from walking in the freedom that Jesus designed you for? And then finally, here's what they say. How is it that you say you will become free? And I think the core of the problem is that they're claiming that they have freedom, but Jesus says we are defining freedom completely different from one another. He says, I'm not defining freedom in the same way that you are. Your freedom is self-defined. You use this word, 
but I'm not sure you know what this word means. <laughs> and I think our modern challenge with freedom maps perfectly over this portion of the debate. We tend to define freedom as the ability to do whatever we please, whatever we want. And that's why we see a widespread rejection of authority in combination with an insatiable desire to express ourselves, and it's all in the name of freedom. I want the true me to shine. Nobody can tell me who I'm supposed to be or what I'm supposed to do. I need to get me out there because that's the way I know that I'm free. I can do, I'm free when I can do whatever I want so long as I'm not hurting anyone. And I just want to gently yet pastorally suggest to you that that kind of freedom leads to chains. That kind of freedom isn't. It isn't freedom. That's the kind of freedom that leads to addiction. That's the kind of freedom that leads to broken relationships. That's the kind of freedom that leads to the destroyed family that you look back on and go, I can't believe I did that. How did I get here? That kind of freedom only leads to regret. And one of the enemy's greatest lies is that freedom is feeding every desire that you have. The enemy would love for you to believe that you are free when you can feed every little desire that you have. And it is a lie. Dare I say, it's a lie from the pit of hell. The reality is that true freedom comes from a strategic loss of some freedoms in order to gain others. And as we follow Jesus, and as we live in his way, with his heart, we become more free than we could have ever possibly imagined, but we do not become free to do whatever we please. Not free to do whatever we please, yet more free than we could have ever possibly imagined. Because we gain the freedom to be able to enjoy and drink deeply of the life that Jesus designed us to live. The freedom from desires and choices that will destroy. And the freedom to love God and others in the way that he designed us to love he, himself and others. So let's, let's just sit with that for a moment. The Apostle Paul would say, you were called to freedom, brothers, but don't use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. Don't use your freedom to do whatever you please and to feed every desire. In fact, that will lead to chains. What should you use your freedom for? Use your freedom to love and to serve one another. So is there any way that you're looking back to Jesus going, freedom, I don't need freedom. And he's saying to you, you're self-deceived because your freedom is self-defined and you're going about, going about getting, gaining it in a way that's self-reliant. So would you allow him to define it? Would you allow him to lead you into it? And would you allow him to shape you to become the kind of people that abide in him, become his disciples, know truth from the inside out, and then go, wow, Lord, thank you for this life that you've created me to live with you and with others. See, this isn't where this conversation necessarily ends. Jesus doesn't acknowledge the untruth that they just spoke. We've never been slaves to anyone. 
But he pivots and he makes it personal for each person standing there. And I think he will do the same for us. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Essentially, Jesus says to the people in his first audience, you're not as free as you think you are. Because you're defining freedom based on your resume and you're defining freedom in the way that you want to. And you're defining freedom based on the fact that you're just deceived and we've never been slaves to anyone. But I'm defining freedom, Jesus says, in your relationship to sin. And you could have a great bank account and a great family and great kids and a great, every, a great hope and a great everything. And yet, if you're entangled in sin, you are not as free as you think you are. Hard stop. However, Jesus doesn't leave us there. He says this. The slave does not remain or abide in the house forever. So, so those who were um, servants back in that day would go in and out of the house. They would be a part of the family for a season and then maybe not a part for another season. And then he says, but the son remains forever. And I think he points at himself. He's going, listen, that's not the way that I function in the house of God. I remain or abide forever. He says, so if the son who remains forever sets you free, then you will be free, what? Indeed, and he's saying that there is a freedom that comes from him that does not belong to them yet because it only comes through Jesus. And that chains only break, they only truly break when they're broken by Jesus. And friends, I know that seems narrow-minded to our postmodern sensibilities, but it's true. But it's true. And here's the other side of that coin. Here's the other side of that coin. It's that any chain can be broken by Jesus. And so I just want to speak for a moment to the person who walked in these doors defeated or, or maybe just um, pacified to believe that you will always struggle with that sin. You'll never be able to really let it go. You'll never break free from that addiction you feel like anger will just always be a part of my life or pornography will always just be a part of my life. This struggle, this addiction will always be a part of my life. And I'm here to preach gospel to you. The good news is that he who the son sets free is free indeed. And the son is able to set anyone free, anyone free. And the first step is being convinced that Jesus actually can bring the kind of freedom that he claims he's pos it's possible for him to bring. Freedom from fear of death, freedom from guilt and shame, freedom from having to perform in order to receive love, freedom from earning your worth or value, freedom from having to satisfy every desire in order to be fulfilled, freedom to approach God with boldness to find help in your time of need, freedom to walk in intimacy with God, freedom to walk in purpose. Freedom is possible. It's possible. And it may not be possible for you to get there just on your own, white knuckling it, trying your hardest. That's why we have ministries like Set Free that meets every Friday night for people who have hurts, habits, and hangups. Raise your hand if that's you. Hurts, habits, yeah, me too. 
Me too, any of, any of us would benefit from going. It's why we have our Freedom in Christ ministry that just started. It is not too late to sign up and to say, I wanna learn more about what God says about me rather than what I think about me. Every Tuesday night, it's why we have pornography recovery groups that meet throughout the week because we are convinced that Jesus invites us to freedom and that sometimes it's impossible to get there on our own, but we need each other, amen? We are a group of imperfect people chasing after a perfect God who says back to us, would you make your home in me? And as we make our home in him, we start to change from the inside out and it's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. Does anybody wanna say amen? amen? We start to change, we become his disciples, learning to live in his way with his heart. And as we put his teaching into practice, we're able to go, you're right. This is better. This is life. This is meaning, this is purpose. And then we get to enjoy the freedom of living in union with him. Here's my invitation to you. Would you choose today that abiding with Jesus is gonna be a keystone habit? The one thing changes everything. And as you go to him and as you go to his word, would you just maybe ask three really simple questions? Jesus, what do you want me to know? Even, even ask him about what we've studied today. What do you want me to know? Do you want me to know that there's more freedom possible than what I'm experiencing? Do you want me to know that you have better for me than what I'm choosing for me? Jesus, what do you want me to feel? Do you want me to feel hopeful? Do you want me to feel convicted? That, that I, I've lived in the, the same way that those Pharisees have lived saying, I don't need your freedom. What, what, do you want me to, how do, what do you want me to feel? And then in light of that, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to respond? How might I live and walk differently because of what you've said today? What would it look like for me to reach for you instead of reaching for my phone. Let me just give you a moment to ask those questions. Ask the Spirit of God to teach you. Ask Him to convict. Holy Spirit, come. Lord, I pray that right now you would be convicting people who have settled for way too little. Spirit of God, convict people who have settled for chains instead of pursuing the chain breaker. Jesus, convict us of if we've built our home, made our home in other places, places other than you. I wanna close our time in the scriptures by praying for you. And I'm gonna ask you to do something bold. If you're here today and you're saying, um, I, I want that freedom. In some area of my life, I wanna be able to let go of this anger. I, I want this thought pattern that just dances in my head constantly. This perspective I have on life, this sin that I'm struggling with. I, I want that 
freedom. I'm gonna ask you to just stand up right now. I'd love to pray for you before we close. We're gonna sing one last song, but would you just stand up? Awesome. Praise God for your boldness. Yeah. If that's you, just stand up right where you are. Lord, I pray over every person who's standing in this space. They're saying back to you, Jesus, we believe you are who you say you are. That he who the sun sets free is free indeed. And our prayer is that we would in new ways experience your freedom. The vast scape of the way that you've designed us to live our lives, that we would drink it in deeply, uninhibited, unchained. Lord, I pray for the people who are struggling with sexual sin. Would you come and would you do a work to break the chains that are around them? For those struggling with something emotionally, Lord, would you come and would you break the chains? For those struggling in a relationship with patterns that have just become a part of their life, Lord, I pray that you would come and that you would break the chains. Jesus, you're the great chain breaker. We rely on you, not on ourselves. And we long to experience the freedom that you want to bring us the freedom to love you and to love others in the way that you've designed us to. Would you come? Would you do your work? Would you unite your body? We can't get there on our own, but by the power of your spirit and the power of community, we believe that every chain can be broken at your name. So come and do your work. Come and do your work, we pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people say, Thank you for listening to our service. We'd love to have you join us in person. For more information about our church and service times, please visit efcc.org. If you would like to support the ministries of Emmanuel Faith, you can do so at efcc.org give.